Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I've got an all-star panel joining me today. Fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, managing editor Bridget Silverman, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is May 26, 2023. Before those of us in the U.S. head out for the Memorial Day weekend, here's some of the FDA and related news that jumped out at us. First up is new data indicating that Pfizer leads the industry in applications pending U.S. approval. This story has a great headline, Everything's Coming Up Pfizer, which of course is a reference to the classic line from The Simpsons, Everything's Coming Up Millhouse. Bonus points if you know why Millhouse said that, by the way. Bridget, you crunched the numbers for us on this Pfizer story. What did you find out? Well, I uh, started by looking at the, the biggest companies and sort of wondering um, uh, what what was going on in, in that sort of group of, of, of the biggest of the big pharma. Um, and the uh, when you start looking at, especially if you start looking at not just uh, novel agents, but um, other new product approvals where you're under an NDA or VLA, which, you know, gets into some sort of interesting things like um, uh, WeGoV, for example. But um, when you when you start looking at what's gone on just in the last couple of years, and, and I went back to, to 2001, um, that uh, Pfizer has um, Pfizer uh, has more products uh, up for approval um, under under review than anybody else by by a bit. And uh, Pfizer now, thanks to Paxlovid, yesterday um, also uh, has the uh, has has tied tied Sanofi for the most approvals in the novel approvals in the time. And uh, one thing I kind of noticed is that with the companies that had the most approvals, sometimes you get a uh, sort of drop off effect where um, then they're busy launching all these new products and they don't have so many new things under review. And you kind of see that with Sanofi, uh, which which doesn't really have anything currently pending. Um, but Pfizer has uh, not just a lot of, of, of recent approvals, but Pfizer also has a lot of products that are coming up for approval. And um, a large part of, of, of this is uh, vaccines. And I don't mean here uh, the COVID vaccine, although obviously that's huge, um, but also uh, respiratory syncytial disease, and um, which uh, is, again, uh, a, a, another approval that, that is likely to come for, for Pfizer this month. Uh, and then, of course, uh, in COVID-19, Pfizer has not just uh, Comirnaty, but also uh, Paxlovid, which was was uh, just uh, got actual approval as opposed to being approved under an emergency use authorization. While Pfizer is really becoming known for, for vaccines, uh, cancer uh, therapies do remain um, a, a really core core business. And uh, they are um, currently waiting for FDA action, uh, probably in August, on uh, their candidate in one of the hottest areas of oncology, which is bispecific antibodies. They've got L-ranatumab for uh, people with a, a very advanced multiple myeloma. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, Pfizer is also building out um, its existing uh, portfolio, um, particularly uh, Talzena and um, 
there's a, a combination of Telzeno with Extandi in first line uh, CRPC prostate cancer um, that uh, the, the the company is 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 excited about. Um, now it's it's kind of interesting that uh, Renatumab is one of um, uh, uh, actually kind of a handful of uh, oncology uh, agents, which is it's not the um, it, it's it's the biggest category, but it's not as big of the biggest category uh, as it sort of traditionally is. Um, it's also sort of notable that there are uh, about you know around uh, a ten novel oncologics known to be under FDA review. Um, half of those five come from the biggest uh, companies, and uh, so then as I said, we've got uh, Pfizer's Elranatumab. Um, Roche and J and J are really sort of the the early kings of of biospecifics. Um, uh, Roche has really sort of applied the technology to a range of of disease states, but J and J has stayed stayed focused on on oncology. Um, and uh, most recently, of course, uh, just on on the nineteenth of this month, um, AbbVie and GenMab's uh, Kinley, uh, another biospecific, uh, was was approved. Um, uh, another sort of pillar of of Pfizer's success has been its its uh, immunology franchise, um, and uh, especially around the JAK inhibitors, where uh, it's a class that came under some some uh, safety scrutiny uh, in recent years, but um, is uh, is back with sort of relabeling to keep it out of, of frontline use, but um, still big big selling category where uh, Pfizer is 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 a major player and they've got their their third uh potential jack candidate um which would actually be the first to be a dual inhibitor of um tech family tyrosine kinases and jack three um that has a, a upcoming uh june user fee goal for alopecia areata so that's one really to to be looking for you know it's it, it's interesting how um being a big farmer really does does give you uh, an advantage. I suspect a lot of that's just in experience um, and and knowing what you're doing and how to do it. Um, and uh, I found that the the top 15 companies combined for 44 novel agent approvals between 2021 and April of 2023. Um, more than half of those held breakthrough therapy designations, um, which is uh, a lot. <laughs> and uh, of Pfizer's uh, pending candidates, um, uh, after uh, uh, Pfizer has uh, four breakthrough candidates uh, under review, which is um, more than than any and anybody else at, at present, I do believe. Uh, we are, are, are looking forward to seeing um, what what uh, the next few months brings, because there's a lot on the UCP calendar. Yeah, that's re- that's really interesting, Bridget. Um, I, I guess I'm I'm curious, you know, just because I've, you know, because we, I cover the regulatory side of this, so I cover the the approval side, not necessarily the commercial side. But um, often when we look at data on whether it's you know novel approvals or generic generic approvals, et cetera. And you ask FDA, well, why did it go up this year or this month or whatever? 
as opposed to the last couple of months, you'll get an answer like, oh, these figures are just cyclical. And, you know, it kind of depends on, you know, the day that we actually sign the form and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, it could be the 30th of the month or it could be the first of the month. It just depends on when I get around to signing things sometimes, you know. Um, I guess I'm curious how Pfizer did this. Do they just, did they get, do they just have like a pipeline that had a lot of stuff that kind of reached the FDA ready stage at the same time? I mean, it, it just seems kind of odd that they have this kind of like bubble, you know, of, of, of applications that are, they're all going at right, you know, all ready to be approved. I think part of it's that they, uh, have invested a lot in a lot of very different categories. And uh, I, I certainly don't know much about their internal organization, but um, I would suspect <laughs> that uh, there's there's just there's there's resources behind a lot of different manufacturing supplier. Um, you know, you just at some point you get these synergies of scale where, uh, you know, you've got all the best, um, you know, communicable disease people. And, you know, you can can handle a bunch of communicable disease programs. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's really, really interesting. And, and um, of course, it, it makes yeah. sense, you know, especially with the, the COVID experience that they have, they have, and they have a, a really good relationship with the FDA, if for mm-hmm. no other reason, because of that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I think also, you know, Pfizer's sort of looking at, at some patent cliff action coming up and they've really had a long view um planning process um Mm -hmm. and especially with these vaccines um those trials are massive Mm -hmm. you know 20 30 40 000 people that uh you know just just having developed the infrastructure to be able to handle that and you know know how to talk to fda about that uh has got to be very valuable one other thing I wanted to ask you about um, there, I believe, and I'm, I'm correct me if I'm re- if I read it wrong, but it it said that um, you said I thought you said that only six of the 21 pending applications had a breakthrough designation. Is, uh, I think I must have misspoken. I think I said um, of 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 all of the pending novel agent approvals, mm-hmm. uh, more than half hold. Breakthrough designations, or uh, but of the pending applications, I'm I'm sorry, of the pending applications, um, only six hold breakthroughs, and I'm 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 stumbling here because of the uh, Epkinley approval, mm-hmm. which happened after the story. So, um, yeah, so yeah, uh, it might be, but uh, yes, um, uh, while there were uh, a lot of breakthroughs in the approved class. Um, in the pending, uh, it's, it's a little bit lighter on, on the breakthrough designations. I I guess I was just curious if there's, is it just, again, is it cyclical? They just, just happened to be a lot of pending applications that didn't use the pat, didn't get the designation or is, I, I I don't know if there's something going on where it's like, is breakthrough like not as popular, you -hmm. know, as it used to be or something, or. I would guess at this point that it's, it's to some extent, just cyclical, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I, I thought the top of my head can't think of it. It's, it's an interesting question where I'm thinking you could, could look at the, uh, at the data, um, 
in 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 light of but i i'm thinking that at at this point it's it's just a little notable that you know maybe maybe you're not uh the first in a class you know and and i i, I need to take a look no, but that's really interesting. And then um, in addition to this story, we also saw a really, a really great infographic uh, with the pending and approved applications. And then, Bridget, you've got more to come. This is like a series of of stories that you've got going now, right? Yeah, um, you know, basically putting putting together the information from that infographic um, showed, you know, all kinds of, of interesting things. So uh, we have a, a story that um, just published on um, Complete response letters, uh, where where Lily is uh, way out ahead. Lily is the the Pfizer of complete response letters. Um, <laughs> Do you want to be that? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, one of the complete response letters is shared, so <laughs> it says Lily and Pfizer partnered on on one. Um, but uh, you know, it's I, I I think it's it's and, and and you know we've got another infographic that looks at uh, the complete response letters that. Uh, have gone to big pharma and what the topics of them were um and uh, there's a lot of interesting information there um and uh then then we're gonna uh go and have a a, a look at um complete response letter uh and approval percentages uh for for big pharma and everybody else um so uh yes the, those of you uh, um if you're listening in real time you haven't seen those yet because they haven't quite published but uh those of you listening to the podcast in the future, those should be uh, <laughs> those should be up by the time that you uh, you're listening to your uh, your podcast. Uh, um, although I uh, um, I can't, I don't know your listening habits, so I can't quite guarantee that because the uh, the uh, the podcast will probably post a little bit before those uh, go up. But uh, be patient if uh, if, uh, if, you, if you if you if you're hitting pause and trying to find those right now, it'll give it give it a little bit of time. Awesome. Well, Bridget, it's really, really great work. Great, uh, great piece. Uh, looking forward to to seeing the rest of it since I am not in the future yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Derek. So next, we're going to move to a smaller firm's efforts to get one of its rare disease treatments approved. Sarepta, known for its development in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, continues to wait for an FDA decision on its SRP9001 gene therapy candidate in the disease. The FDA had set May 29th as the goal for its decision, but this week the company announced that the date had been moved to June 22nd. The product still appears to be on, on track for an accelerated approval, but Sarepta did indicate that FDA likely will restrict the patient population to ages four and five at first. And depending on the data from the confirmatory study known as Embark, treatment eligibility could expand. This seems to be a setback for Sarepta, but may have some benefits as well. The delay gives the company more time or gives more time for Embark patients to complete their final study visits, meaning fewer could potentially drop out after the accelerated approval, which was a, a, a major worry for, for the FDA. So, just as a reminder that a few weeks ago, we learned that F the FDA review team did not want to file this application and that CEDAR director Peter Marks overruled them. For, the, for my panel here, so to give you all a chance to jump in finally, are you at all surprised at how this product has gone seemingly from no to yes at the FDA? I would say no, just because of the company involved and the disease involved. Perhaps we could say stranger things have happened with Sarepta and 
Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, I'm not really surprised that there was a delay in the um, application decision. I think we had sort of been speculating about this internally, although we had been speculating about a, perhaps a major amendment and a three-month delay. Um, the advisory committee was called very late in the process. There was only really essentially two weeks between the advisory committee and the effective user fee date, because the user fee date is actually on a, a federal holiday here in the U.S. So a decision would have been expected today, really. So I'm not surprised that they need some more time to iron out these last-minute issues. Um, I think that restricting the indication to, I think it's what, four to five-year-olds, which is where they were able to identify kind of post-hoc <laughs> efficacy uh, in the randomized placebo-controlled portion of one of the trials. Um, I think that's a conservative decision by the FDA, but it's one that they can probably back up with the most evidence available. Yeah, there's a whole other like hour-long discussion on, <laughs> you know, the, the issues with four to five-year-olds versus six to seven-year-olds, which is the other group in that randomized placebo-controlled portion of one of the studies that they submitted. Um, but yeah, we'll just, we'll let that go. We're not, we're not going to get into, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in, in Duchesne yeah. natural history. Yeah. <laughs> well, just, just to say that through kind of that, that, that whole question about through kind of, you know, which age group it works for, through kind of underscores the critical importance of developing good natural histories for uh, rare diseases, uh, um, uh, so that you can sort of kind of uh, do these small studies, you know, with some uh, some validity, uh, if you know sort of kind of what the uh, what the the, the comparisons uh, should be. Well, that in a way though, that's part of the problem that Sarepta has, and the and the DMD patients have is that they have this extensive natural history, and we and one of the stories, the follow up stories to the advisory committee, we ran the the chart of the natural history, looking at the. North Star ambulatory assessment scores, which is measures like ability to like stand up and and things like that as the disease progresses. And, you know, there's like a, a line, a dark line in the middle kind of showing the average kind of trend. But you can see it. The lines are all over the place. It's really, really hard to tell. You know, it, it's really hard to kind of nail down like a consistent sort of you know, progression of the disease. And that, that's that's nobody's fault. That's just the way the data has come out as they've done the natural, they track natural history. So I'm, I was thinking about this as I was, you know, planning for, you know, um, uh, what we were going to talk about. I mean, is it possible that, you know, I'm wondering if maybe this is, this is a function of the disease and then every time, I mean, you know, Sarepta is, is not the only company that's developed, has something developed in DMD, but it's, They've clearly done the most work. I mean, I'm I'm wondering if this is you know if the natural history, the problems with the natural history are going to be kind of just that's just going to be the way it is, and with anything that gets developed in this space, and you're just going to have to kind of live with this. You know, do we you know questions about efficacy and 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 so forth? You know, going forward. I think that's certainly uh, uh, true, Derek, uh, um, that, uh, you know, there's going to be a uh, insufficient data probably sort of to satisfy uh, um, 
everyone, depending on your per perspective, uh, um, you know, it's either sort of to, um, uh, not enough to sort of kind of to say definitely to, that it does work, or not enough to say that uh, you know it, it couldn't uh, um, it couldn't work. Uh, I would say the uh, the FDA review staff is perhaps a little more uh, um, skeptical than you are about the uh, the uh, the heterogeneity of the uh, um, of the data. There obviously are those wide margins and that great graph that you put in your uh, in your story, but uh, um, you know, just there are different perspectives between the uh, the sponsor and the uh, the primary reviewers on the on that uh, on that question. I'd say. Yeah, I mean, they were the FDA at one point. I think during the meeting said we we don't know if it works. We don't know if it doesn't work. It, it yeah, it's a it, this is a tough you know it's turning out to be a, a good call, but for um, for patients. But it's you know I, I'm sure this is not this is not an easy one um, for for anybody. Another thing I wanted to get into a little bit was this, you know, the, this drug, this gene therapy is expected to get accelerated approval. That CBER uh, director, Peter Marks, has made made a point to say that he wants to use accelerated approval in rare diseases. Do, do you think that this this is kind of the good the door opener for that? Or, you know, it, it, you know will this kind of will this this product serve as kind of the model or you know, for accelerated approval in gene therapy, or are we going to see, you know, are we going to see some different approaches, you know, at least on the CEDAR or CBER side of things, excuse me. I mean, I feel like the patient community is looking at this as, as a door opener um, for wider use of accelerated approval in gene therapy. We've already seen some accelerated approvals with gene therapies in rare diseases, specifically Bluebird Skysona, um, which was approved for uh a rare disease known as CALD, C-A-L-D. I can't remember exactly what the uh, the full name is of the disease, cerebral adrenoleukodystrophy or something like that. Um, but that uh, honestly, that got very little attention relative to Sarepta. And I think the current situation is getting all the play because A, it's Sarepta and B, it's Duchenne. It's a very activist patient community, and there's been a, a lot of controversy in this space already as a result of a Teplersen and all the exon-skipping drugs, which we still don't know if they actually work or not. Mm -hmm. You know, that's we're, we're still a couple years out from finding that out. I, you know, every every meeting you hear Peter Marks talk at, he'll talk about accelerated approval and the circumstances under which he thinks it would be appropriate in a rare disease. And those generally involve replacing an enzyme or a protein or, or something like that, something that is is clearly measurable. We'll have to see. I think it would be very interesting, assuming an accelerated approval is granted, I think it will be super interesting to take a look at the review documents and see exactly where everybody came down on this issue. And, you know, did all the clinical team um, recommend against approval or did were there some members of the clinical team that did recommend approval? I think it'll be very interesting. Well, and how they structure the document too, considering that they've yeah. they they're doing these combined review documents now, where they're not putting in the individual memos and making like a 250 page book out of it. Um, if they if they allow for a lot of, you know, I mean, dissenting opinions is not the right phrase, but you know, 
they if they illustrate the disagreement in the in the in the documents, it'll be that'll be very interesting to read and kind of how they came out, you know, how what the end result was. Was it the office director that signed off? Did they did they let Peter Marks sign off on it? I mean, there there are a lot of kind of questions that were we're all kind of all of us FDA wonks are a little are interested to see see what see what how they get answered. Yeah, I think the uh, the positive advisory committee uh, vote kind of uh, diffused a lot of those tensions. Uh, perhaps this were kind of you know now that they have sort kind of uh, an outside endorsement of this uh, this approach, there may sort of uh, be more internal agreement uh, um, because of that. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good thought, Matt. Um, it, yeah, that could have certainly could have given a lot of people, yeah, you know, at least had them think of think dif- made them think differently about you know kind of what they were what they saw in the application. Finally, we're going to talk about advisory committee reform. Cedar Director Patrizia Cavazzoni said that the agency may begin using more temporary voting members in adcoms in order to ensure that the right expertise is available based on the application being discussed. The composition of standing committees is not changing, nor is the way committee members are selected. Cavazzoni also said Cedar wants to increase the consistency in how discussion and voting questions are formulated. And even though even though she says the comment has been misinterpreted, Cavazzoni said that the center continues to consider changes related to the emotion during meetings as well as voting. I'm sure we've all heard that the both of those comments several times. I'm curious what you all think of this. Could you envision any issues with having more temporary advisory committee members? You know, adcoms on occasion are slowed also by kind of members issues with wording of the questions. But I, you know, I don't know if that's like a consistency issue from, from that standpoint. I mean, you know, could we see more of the same or similar questions asked to committee members for each product in a class or maybe specific questions asked of say like every single gene therapy that comes through something like that i'm not sure how you could make consistent questions from meeting the meeting because i think you know each product has its own issues there's a reason why mm. fda is taking each product to an advisor committee i could see making a single you know well making one at least one consistent question each meeting being do the benefits outweigh the risks or just generally a vote on the benefit risk balance? I know Rob uh, Califf has talked about getting rid of the vote, the gladiator vote, he calls it. Um, but I do think that gives you a sense on where the committee really comes down on a particular product. In terms of adding temporary voting members, we've seen a lot of that lately. The um, meeting last Friday, the GI advisory committee meeting last Friday on intercepts obeticolic acid for NASH. Um, More than half of the advisory committee members were temporary voting members. Um, And certainly there's something to be said for adding extra expertise, but uh, I go back to some of the opioid meetings where it was, you know, you were up more than 20 members uh, they may have been two committees combined, and then you had temporary voting members. And it does get to a point where it can be very unwieldy in terms of size, especially if you're still doing all this virtually. Um, so that that's just one concern that jumps out at me. Well, and you're trying to get you know, and FDA has said consistently we're more con- we're more interested in comments and recommend you know physical speaking by the members rather than voting. So 
if you get, you know, you're up to 20, 25 people, it's hard for everybody to talk and get their two cents in, even at the end when they have to justify their votes or say why they're doing, why they're deciding what they're deciding. Um, so, yeah, I could see that 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 definitely could be an issue. But as Sue is uh, saying, and as we've uh, r- reported, the 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 issue of the 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 votes is 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 uh, kind of fraught. I mean, obviously, sort of you don't want it to sort of be a simple binary. You obviously want the detailed scientific discussion, but without a vote, the the committee doesn't sort of offer a strong path forward for uh, for anything. Like if there mm-hmm. had not been a vote at the Sarepta um, uh, hearing on their uh, gene therapy, I think the uh, the company and the FDA would sort of be in a much uh, much more difficult uh, place because, uh, um, you know, it was sort of a, uh, um, a, a, a toss up. I mean, it was, it was sort of a, a close vote. And so there wasn't sort of kind of a clear um, consensus for, from the um, from the panel as to sort of what to do, even though there were a lot of interesting ideas and uh, um, thoughtful discussion. But uh, um, if uh, um, if it all comes down to the vote, uh, um, uh, obviously, that's kind of you sort of uh, uh, miss some of that uh, subtlety, but uh, without the vote, uh, even if it's temporary members voting, you don't uh, get the uh, um, get a decision. Uh, I guess that's the most simple way to say that. Even even though the of course the advisory committees don't uh, um, don't actually make the decision; they just make the rec- recommendation. But it's a um, it's a uh, it's a it's a complicated uh, issue. Go ahead, yeah, I was going to say without the votes at some of the meetings I've covered recently, I if you had said. Okay, how do you think they're going to vote after listening to their conversation, you know, for a few hours? I don't think I would have correctly predicted a lot of the people, (laughs) how the individual people voted or how the outcome would be, because and I think this is honestly like a common phenomenon over the years where you listen to these people who are so, you know, into the weeds and really good at picking out all the deficiencies in the clinical trials and things that could have been done a little bit better. You know, why didn't you have this data? Why don't you have this answer? You know, and um, just by the nature of these drugs usually ending up at an advisory committee, they're usually closer calls. You know, they're not the really obvious um, yes or no calls. And I think sometimes they sort of seem really critical during the day. And at the end of the day, they do vote for it. And um, I think without really forcing them to say, okay, these right, these are tough calls. They're they're not easy answers. You can understand why people might go both ways, but how do you feel? It it really makes it hard for us to understand their thinking. And you could appreciate how FDA might take their words and <laughs> you know think they meant one thing when they actually meant another. So I, I mean, I I definitely appreciate the value of their comments and all the nuance that you get from that. But I think without the votes, you sort of lose something and almost you would lose some sort of, in my mind, you might actually lose trust in FDA and going through the process because, you know, it it would feel like FDA could kind of have too much leeway to decide what the committee felt without, you know, sort of quantifying that vote in that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've all been we've all been at meetings where somebody has said, I don't like this. I don't like this. They spend the whole meeting saying things they don't like, and then they vote and they say, yeah, I think it's fine. And, you know, I recommend approval and they make, you know, they come up with something completely different reason for deciding what they decided. So, Imagine if there had been no voting at the Aducanumab meeting, that it had all been discussion. And that final voting question was, it was pretty definitive. I think it was like 11 people said, no, you cannot rely on this one single study. And there was one who was uncertain. 
And no one said, yes, you can rely on this single study. I think it puts a clearer <laughs> mark where the committee is coming from on some of these uh, benefit risk decisions. I was going to also say when you're talking about bigger committees, um, you do sometimes like get get to meetings where you realize like there are, you know, 10, 15 people and like five or six of them were sort of the dominant chatters mm -hmm. um, during the meeting. And you heard a lot of their thoughts and you realize like, oh, this person's on the committee and we really haven't heard from them. So sometimes that, um, again, it's helpful to have points in the meeting where everybody who is on the committee is really forced to weigh in and, you know, put in some effort there. Because I think actually I remember back to some of the original COVID vaccine advisory panels where they were so rushed um, and they did have votes, but then there wasn't time for people to explain the votes. And I, I think I, I, I could be remembering wrong with advisory committee, but I feel like I've covered advisory committee meetings where you actually there were people on the panel who you really didn't get anything out of. Um, yeah, no, maybe, I've seen that happen too. Yeah. Um, and I, I, again, I think that's a, a you know, a, a loss, um, mm -hmm. you know, to sort of sometimes when you don't push for the different people to weigh in and their different expertise, and then you get sort of some people are just kind of naturally, um, you know, have that dominant speak and meeting personality and you don't, um, you miss out on key insights there. Well, and, and I mean, I remember I, I've occasions where the the this the most of the discussion is really heavily scientific type of issues, and you know the non scientists on the committee end up not saying anything because it you know they're either it, they either don't understand what's going on or don't you know don't have anything to add to the conversation or it's you know it's just you know. Um, you know, just that they're, they, they can't, they don't jump in. So yeah, you, you end up with, you know, nothing from those people until the very end when they, you know, if they vote. So, yeah. That's definitely the case that I've experienced, especially with patient representatives yeah. and consumer representatives. You may have patient representatives who you don't hear from until the time of the vote. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. The Sarepta advisory committee meeting a couple of weeks ago was the opposite of that. Um, which is which, as Sue said, was rare. The their, the patient, the DMD patient representative was he spoke a lot. He was really well versed and understood everything that was going on. Another thing I wanted to bring up, and and maybe I'm just uh, this could be just me overthinking things, but um, if if you're picked to be a standing member of these of one of these advisory committees, and you know, and I get it, not everybody is an expert in everything, and they the remits are wide ranging and there are diseases that just people don't know about and that's fine um but you know it I, i'm wondering if if most of the standing committee members should have be expected to have at least enough working knowledge to be able to judge most of these applications and i don't know, maybe like i said maybe i'm just overthinking it and i get it they want to have they want to have as as much precise expertise on a lot of the on these applications because they're so difficult to to do. It's difficult to do the development. It's difficult to understand the disease. It's difficult to understand what the drug is doing to the disease. So I, you know, like I said, I'm I'm curious if 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 some minimal level of expertise should be expected of the standing committee members at least. Well, I mean, from what I've seen, FDA tries to get standing committee members who not only are, you know, maybe expert clinicians in a particular area, but also who are familiar with 
clinical trials and conducting clinical trials and design and, and those sorts of issues. Um, I, I think, you know, you may not be an expert in DMD, but yeah. if you have expertise in neurological diseases, you can kind of understand the issues, I think. I mean, I've definitely seen people who are not experts in the diseases, you know, maybe like the biostatisticians say, I'd like to hear from my clinical colleagues on the panel what they think about this. You know, what do they think about the magnitude of, of clinical benefit with this drug? You know, and you get some very interesting discussions there because there's usually, usually at least two or three on the panel who have specific clinical expertise in that disease, even if it's if it's a fairly rare disease. That's what I've seen, at least. Well, and I understand, like, sorry, I, I understand some of the, you know, like, especially in the rare disease context, they, you know, these really small clinical trials, like N of 1 trials and so forth, they need people who do those and understand those on the committee. And so you add those people as a temporary voting member. I understand, you know, I understand that. I'm just curious if some of the, you know, the majority of applications they're seeing if the you know the expertise of the standing members should be enough i don't think the expertise of the standing members is enough for some of these certainly no but that's where the temporary voting members come in oh i was going to say before that i think like the the interaction assume sort of mentioned between the people on the committee that have different expertise and are looking at it from those different angles can be really valuable but um you know like sue said you probably especially as you get rare diseases you're going to need to add people as temporary members but i also think there is like a value in the consistency of certain people on the advisory panel who kind of just understand how the process works sometimes they just understand like the nuances of what fda does right Mm -hmm. or the authorities fda has what you can do in labeling you know those kinds of things that i think sometimes when you get temporary folks that don't have that depth of expertise you lose so like i think you you wouldn't want to like kind of start over for every right every advisory committee with a total with a completely fresh panel i think there's value um to the knowledge that you know people who serve for a longer period of time on the committee bring We've also seen in the case of the accelerated approval withdrawal hearings for Avastin and um, McKenna, in both cases, they had standing members of the committee who were not experts in either breast cancer or preterm birth, and both felt like, both have publicly stated that they felt like they could bring sort of an outsider's perspective to this sort of a more objective perspective to the data because they didn't, you know, they they didn't practice in this specific area and they could just sort of consider things, you know, without having to think about, well, what would I tell my patient about this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that is valuable too. Yeah, it's a very interesting discussion and I think we pretty much talked our way into not solving any of these problems so <laughs> usually we do tell everything on the podcast though that's, yeah that's exactly yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah could i engage you in a, a short colloquy on uh, everything's coming up millhouse before we uh sign off the uh the reference that uh, i thought when i saw uh, bridget's headline everything's coming up pfizer was everything's coming up roses and so that i picked a uh, a rose that's sort of a, the picture for the um 
the top of the story. But uh, what made you think everything's coming up Millhouse? Well, because everything's coming up Millhouse. It was that was the uh, the 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 episode where Homer floods Springfield and it ends up for an art project and it ends up flooding Millhouse's room and his cuffs are his cuff his leg is or shoes are wet and his cuffs are dry so he yells everything's coming up millhouse <laughs> i i've watched too many I, simpsons episodes as you can tell i i wish i wish that that had been what i was referencing <laughs> I it was the old song um that is a great episode i mean the minute you said it it was like oh yeah but <laughs> Maybe you should um, change the feature image now and do some kind of A-B <laughs> testing of how that impacts <laughs> our um, story engagement. Yeah, there we go. And, uh, yeah, listeners, listen, let us know which uh, which reference you prefer. Should we have uh, um, uh, old uh, old uh, old music or uh, more obscure uh, more obscure uh, more recent pop culture? Yeah, I wonder if we could find like a, a screenshot that, that we could actually use of of Millhouse with his dry cuffs and wet feet. <laughs> <laughs> only only if we could get Simpsons uh themed um images for everything else in the series. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. That that would be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> that's all for this week. <laughs> For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, Bridget Silverman, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 